All right. Master James. Yeah, we are back. In a minute. Talking, talking dat vadonkadonk. All right. <laughs> okay. Cheers. Cheers, man. Good to see you, too. Great to see you. I'm uh, excited about this this episode. We <clears throat> most of the time it's very it's totally in line with listeners know with just uh, for the last seven years we would have weekly conversations about random things that are on my mind. But for this episode, seven years, <clears throat> seven years ago when I was thirty, um, and for this episode, I was uh, thinking. You had written down a a, um, a list of different ideas, mm. uh, visuals of just kind of cool snippets, um, and I saw it in my inbox. And I was like, actually, I would love to go through some of these with Joseph sure. right now. So, yeah. if you're open to a little, uh, almost like rapid fire, and this will be cool for listeners to get these one minute. I don't know. 90 second doses of these different concepts if you're if you are down let's do it okay um <laughs> <clears throat> putting your feet to the fire with yeah with these let's see how we do uh, and hey you know the magic of podcasting we can edit it out if you want another take but uh i have a feeling you're going to be quite prepared for these 25 years of preparation going into inshallah into inshallah yes um Okay, the first thing would be, um, why are we doing everything? We're doing all these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. We're doing everything. Like, it, there is no one that is is doing nothing. In fact, that's, in weird ways, that's what we think of as the goal, to get mm. to the beach and do nothing. Mm. But um, no one can even do nothing. That's like, right. <laughs> an enlightened soul can do nothing. Everyone else compulsively acts. Yeah. Action is inevitable. It's happening all the time. As long as there's vasanas, as long as there's desires, there is action. Yeah. Tell me more. Uh, the, very, the very presence of the, the uh, potential for action, the very presence for the seeds of, of thought, which are of vasanas, they will manifest. We will be in action. That a human action is the insignia of life. This is what Swami says. And to the question, to the point of that particular topic, everything everybody's doing all the time is only to get to the infinite state of consciousness, to the state of self-realization, consciously or unconsciously. Consciously moving towards the state of pure consciousness, self-realization, means you're a seeker. Unconsciously, yeah, consciously move towards it. You know what you're doing. You're choosing it. I, I want to get towards the self. I want to remove my desires and my ignorance and return to my original infinite nature. That's a seeker. But everybody else is also doing it just unconsciously. So even uh, when we go out to surf, trying to catch a wave, we're trying to reach that still point. Mm. When somebody's uh, uh, doing anything in they're doing in life, whether they're avoiding work or going towards work or exercising or not exercising Can't wait for the party on friday after work it's all about trying to get to a point of stillness to a to a point of peace desirelessness desirelessness so vedanta just says why not do it directly mm. man 
I'm going to struggle with these because I could turn every single one of these into its own episode. I was wondering if we're going because, to... <laughs> because it's it is just a, yeah. it's there's such amazing yeah. uh, caverns. Yeah, <laughs> like caverns. Well said. Yes, I understand. Yeah, and and then just the the idea of like why we're doing everything. Yeah, <laughs> and then, so uh, and that is the beauty of thousands of years and lineage of sages articulating these. Mm-hmm massive yeah. like unthinkable questions i would never even think to have that big of a question of why do we do anything yeah um unless there was years of reflection on big questions uh much less have it succinctly put into an answer so that's um that's beautiful and it, it reminds me of a story of when you're saying when you ask swami about drugs uh what do you think about uh drugs and people seeking drugs, even if it's psychedelic for some uh, seemingly enlightening experience. And he said, Mis- misguided mamukshatwa. Misguided mamukshatwa, yeah. Do you mind explaining that too? Mamukshatwa is that same desire for the infinite, desire for our original state, desire for the fullness of enlightenment, but just put in a negative way. In the sen- Not negative in the sense of bad, but mamukshatwa just means... Ignorant yearning for liberation mm. it's so it's it's not so much about the word mamukshatwa is not like re- aspiring to reach self-realization it's more about trying to get out of this bondage which is the same thing if you get out of the bondage you're self-realized if one's putting it positively one's putting it negatively so in that case and in any case whatever we're doing ever is misguided mamukshatwa in a sense mm. trying to collect more power it's just a, a roundabout way of getting to the all power that you really is. Trying to, to get more knowledge endlessly is trying to, a roundabout way of trying to get to sarvagnya sarvavit, the, the mm-hmm. all-knowingness that you truly is. Trying to go everywhere and see everything in the world is, is in a way roundabout trying to become, to return to the all-pervasive consciousness that you really is. It's all misguided mamukshatwa. Everything we're doing is is trying to liberate ourselves externally when they're saying all you have to do, famously, he says, you know, you can chase your shadow around the world or you can just catch it. Mm. You know, so ultimately all masters, any tradition, they say the truth is within. That which you seek is within you. Mm. The kingdom of heaven is within you. Yeah, there's... Uh What's the, the, I think it was Ramana that said, uh, you can burlap the world or just wear sandals and try to burlap the world because no one's ever going to do it. Um, or yeah, go within and again. I, I mean, uh, since we're elaborating, I had a, 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 a corporate talk years ago um, in uh, Northern California and it was this group I was working with for a whole weekend and uh, was talking about mind and intellect and desires and the mind is the storehouse of desires and we shouldn't be a victim of desires and slave to our our minds and this is vedanta 101 you know try to govern that that urge for desires and this one guy just was not having it he was in the first few talks that you could see him just he's kind of uncomfortable he's a little shifty he wasn't into it but he was there because he's part of this corporate group who i was speaking with and then the second day, he just wasn't like even really looking at me. And that afternoon, he just like slammed his hand on the table. And he goes, okay, I've had enough of this. <laughs> mm. 
and i was like yes you know it was so good it's so nice in a way it's like yeah at least he's somebody's thinking you know and right. like i don't agree what the hell are you talking about how can we not have desires how can we not uh you know pursue the promptings of our mind that's why we're all here we're all in this beautiful resort wherever we were you know we're all successful guys because of our desires I said you're right no one's you know no one's saying you shouldn't have it you know at least not yet <laughs> but we're saying you know you shouldn't be a victim to it and he's like yeah but this is what makes us go with desires and i said okay sir and at that point he's standing up he's standing up at, at, wow. the, at the table like i thought he was gonna leave and he says i said okay i'm i'm with you you're right we need these desires to make us go and achieve anything to record this podcast to fly to india to meet the swami we all need desires uh i said um but only thing is i would like you to just close your eyes for a minute and that that made him a little uncomfortable i was like just stand there and close your eyes take a deep breath and remember the top three most perfect moments in your life and he did it he 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 got quiet and i saw his shoulders kind of relax and he's <laughs> we don't usually do this kind of stuff you know mm -hmm. right this is not our style but i was like this guy's gonna leave i need to like settle him down mm -hmm. so he says uh he opens his eyes and he was kind of had this like smile in his eyes he had obviously tapped into some lovely memories of his life and i said in any of those memories in any of those experiences at the time of that that pleasure that you're remembering, was there any desire? Mm. And he just kind of looked at me. He didn't answer. Kind of everyone else looked at him. <laughs> he didn't answer. Everyone's kind of looking around. And he just kind of goes and sat down mm. and didn't say anything else the rest of the time. That's all we're saying. We're not saying don't pursue the world. That, no, that's all Vedanta is saying, you know. Don't, it doesn't say don't pursue the world or whatever, but understand ultimately what you want is that still point. Mm. You want that state of desirelessness. And the more we go for it externally, the more inflamed the mind gets and strengthens those vasanas we were talking about and drives us further into action. We may temporarily get a, a, a sense of satisfaction of, contacting the object or being or experience of our desire but it will lead to more so vedanta says instead restrain yourself get yourself focused on in you the hack it use your desire ridden nature for oh, the higher for the higher use all that energy <clears throat> and look towards yourself look towards the true kingdom that you're actually seeking look towards the true consciousness within you that is infinite already and just discover what's already there the um uh, an investor friend of of mine investor in different things that i built <coughs> mentor naval ravikant that we've mentioned on the podcast before he has a great line of desires a contract with yourself to be unhappy until you get what you want <laughs> so yeah we, we yeah. naturally think of desires as good things only because of previous experiences of it being peaceful once you got it. But the desire itself to what you're saying, that it's a contract to be unhappy. Yeah. Until you get what you want. Uh, so, you know, he just says, sign them thought, thought thoughtfully. But he also has another uh, quote in a different direction, but uh, tyranny of low expectations. Hmm. 
And he said, we all walk around with this tyranny of low expectations for ourselves, for what our children can achieve, for what our society can be. And we just settle for like, oh yeah, it's, uh, that's not for me. Oh, my, my three-year-old isn't, isn't going to be able to be polite. Oh no, just they're wild. Three and ager. Um, and, or our society, yeah, it's going downhill, jump ship. And, uh, and he calls it the tyranny of low expectations. I think that what you're talking about is finding the kingdom of within, a kingdom within the kingdom of God is within you, famous words from Christ. And it's, you say that to so many of us, and we've just been told a million times that that's laughable, that you're not a king. You're not a queen. Yeah. You're barely treading water above being a pauper, mm. making rent. And it's both of those combined for something really uh, powerful. Uh, all three, your your point, and then the, these other two of it's a, maybe it's a tyranny of low expectations that you don't think there's a kingdom within you. And think is the right word. Mm. This is a, as as we're talking about this. I'm just thinking to myself, like you're in love with the thought of the self. I'm in love with the thought of the self. So for us, we know what we're talking about. I'm not talking about the self. Mm-hmm. I'm still talking about the thought of the, the thought, self. Right. So uh, the listener, if they, if they're like, what are, what are they? When I look within, there's nothing there. You know. I mean, if I really stop and try to look within, could it's true? No one's gonna hear this and suddenly be like, I got it, and look within. I mean, if they do, hats off to them, and please, you know, like let us know. But it's it's not that easy. You know, it's not that simple. Right. So before actually going within the way we really mean it in the Vedantic sense of actually contacting the self within, long before that, you can, as he says in the Bhajagovindam, create in your mind the thought of reality, right? And not the, drop the thought of the acquisition in, of the world. Mm. Create in your mind a thought of reality. That thing becomes so fascinating. It's so satisfying that it, it just, the, the world pales in comparison. We were saying this recently that the, the, the highest purpose of a human being is to explore existence itself, to explore consciousness itself. With your thoughts, to take the time to, to look at what is it that allows me to be conscious of this body, conscious of this mind, conscious of this intellect, conscious of the world. Or what, is, what is consciousness itself? What is that? So this is the, the thing that I hope people hear and get interested in because that's what Vedanta is all about is, is really looking at that thought of reality from so many different angles that you can't unsee it mm-hmm. after a point. It makes it to where you can't unsee it. You're, mm-hmm. you, you, the seeker who really starts to see it it, it takes over your it takes over everything it edges out everything in your vision mm-hmm. and so you you are liberated from the endless desire from the uh, the pressures of the world to try and go out and get the world it doesn't mean you don't enjoy it you, you do go out and get it when you need it and whatever but there's a higher satisfaction even in the thought of reality mm-hmm. and uh, so I it, just as a quality control so that people don't think we're talking about like 
directly direct perception of the consciousness within immediately long before that there's really great true satisfaction just in paying attention to the consciousness that you that you is yeah it's uh it's like the personification of these lights around us if they could go from looking at the table that this light is shining on which that's it's your human right and duty to be able to do this because you are personified of go from looking at the table that you're shedding your light on as a light bulb to turning within and recognizing like, holy shit there is electricity coming mm. through me mm. that's mm. lighting me up to yes point that awareness that consciousness at the table or that light at the the wall at this person joseph but there's something coming through me that i i never switched on i don't understand i've never really sat to try to figure out what is this thing that's independent of the fuse of the glass of the person that you're shining that light on. And um, yeah, I've heard it said of like people since the beginning of time could can and will argue about the existence of God of something other, but what is laughable that you would never argue about. You'd never even bring up because it's so obvious is the argument of whether you exist or not. Mm -hmm. So yeah, for the to exactly your point, and this is a great segue to the next one I want to ask you about. But yeah, for the listeners out there that are maybe uh, have like all of us, we all have the tyranny of low ex, uh, of low expectations. Mm -hmm. um, but think like, what are they talking about? There's a king. There is no king. That's not for me. Yeah, I'm here for the practical side, uh, right? To get more of the world. Right. Um, yeah, to your point, cultivate just this. You exist. That itself, just just pausing to look at that, the very isness that you is that happens to be of the nature of consciousness, that mm. happens to be sentient. This is real grace. When people talk about the grace of God, this is it. The very existence of the isness that is and that it is of the nature of consciousness. But it, the thing is, too, it, because it's, it's singular, it's one. There's one consciousness. There's one fundamental reality. When you put your thoughts on it, your mind is simple as it is. Mm -hmm. As you think, so you become. So that mind that's disparate and running in 80,000 different directions every day, like all of ours does when we're doing whatever we do, we're doing all the time, that, that time you get to just leave your thoughts in that radical simple state. It's radically simple. Mm. Radically pristine. Is, is a relief from the get-go, from day one, once you, once you get into that frequency. And this becomes your morning study. This is what we mean, really, by morning study, is constantly reminding that, of what that state is, what that fullness is, what that perfection is. Meeting the guru is the same thing. You're, it's, you're seeing that state. It draws you back to that state. Whatever inspires somebody, you know? People go on certain pilgrimages, they see certain things. It reminds them of that state, you know. Mm. It all brings you back to that what Rumi called the friend, in capital F. It becomes the best friend, you know, that you'll have ever. It, there's, it's, it's always right there, accessible if you just turn to look at it. Mm. And this whole thing is only that yoga for your intellect. Yoga, it's trying to connect our thoughts to that thought and find that liberation relatively and absolutely. 
Okay, the, before I jump to that, that segue I mentioned, I do want to ask why the term yoga for your intellect uh, to, to build on that more. Yeah. Uh, that came out of the somewhere. It fell out of the sky in Malibu. Why does it fit so well in, in your mind? I, I, because, you know, um, we're, it, it came up in Malibu when we were at the resort, and it was like what to, how to explain Vedanta to people and, and that have really, really no background who are checking into this hotel. And uh, Vedanta Treatise was in the room, so that helped. But it was like we need a tagline. And, um, you know, people know the word yoga. It's familiar now. And um, Thoreau said, in the early morning, I bathe my intellect in the stupendous and cosmogonal philosophy of the Bhagavad Gita, etc. Mm-hmm. So it is a, it is a, a yoga, a, a bathing of the intellect. It's a daily practice that you, you use to connect the intellect to that thought of reality. Rather than just using the intellect, you know, to get ahead of everyone else all day long, you use it for its highest capacity, which is to discriminate the real from the unreal and to look towards that one truth. And something just connected. And I was like, why? It's like yoga for, for your intellect. Yeah. <laughs> and it just makes sense. It is. So when we're sitting here and we, we can talk about any number of things or we can talk about the consciousness. The moment we start talking about the consciousness, the moment people get together or with themselves, with their books or with the e-learning, start putting their thoughts on the reality. They're using their intellect to connect to the divine core, to their self, their true self. And that's it's yoga. It's like hygiene daily for for the intellect uh, yeah. in the same way yeah you tone the body you tone the body so it's it's intellectual asanas like you have physical asanas in physical yoga you have intellectual asanas that you go back to and work with and remember and put through your system and allow to restructure your your mindset your worldview, the same way that if you do yoga, you allow it to, you know, you allow it to rebuild your body, to open up your hamstrings and, you know, liberate your neck and all the things that you do with physical yoga in the same way, putting these higher concepts into our system. We want it to change our minds, you know, to, to make us have uh, at least initially that thoughtful access to the consciousness that is our core. That is our, our essential nature. Yeah, it's it is a it's a beautiful metaphor because of that that physical yoga um, corollary, and which is so great for the body. It's uh, it's why it's taken the world by by storm uh, over the last thirty years, and the and just that metaphor of toning your body toning the intellect if you don't tone your body you have to lean on everybody else to lift things for you mm-hmm. you're feeble you're self-insufficient and therefore you get taken to an extreme you're really debilitated right you you, you do not have the liberation yeah. the liberty to go for a walk to go for a run to lift this thing in your kitchen that you need yeah. to be lifted yeah and we all have those examples in our mind where you you needed to help someone out because they didn't have that physical capacity. And it seems uh, seems like a beautiful metaphor because it's the same for the intellect. You absolutely can go without toning your intellect. Yep. You will lean on everybody's intellect around you. Yes. You will uh, kind of be a drain. Yep. 
and you won't have the liberty to, let's say, make the choice of, okay, I don't think I'm going to choose that career Yeah, where I'm going to sink the, my best years, the better part of my waking hours away from family, away from these other things. Uh, and maybe that is a, a calling for you, but you can think about it clearly instead of being like, you know what? I don't have the intellect to really think through this. Um, right. So I'm going to outsource my thinking and uh, let other people do that lifting for me. All right. Mm. They say I should be an investment banker for 30 years. Mm. Uh, and, um, and maybe that was your calling or maybe your calling was actually to be a fifth grade teacher. So the, yeah, that's a, it's an excellent metaphor. And in those 30 years of not following uh, your, your nature, your Swadharma, which is another question I want to ask you about, can be super painful. Um, yeah, if one, what we're talking about is creating an awareness of reality and living, having your intellect rooted in that and moving through your life. Mm. So, um, when you have that awareness of what you really is, of your true infinite nature, of the fact that you are the ocean, you're not this wave, when you and and live live like a wave you know when you do that you can't live mechanically so when you have awareness when you have that objectivity towards life uh there there's an alertness that happens in your intellect so you you will as thoreau again said go he said i went to the woods to live deliberately mm. so it's not that you you're a grand rebel all the time to everything but you will question you won't take things for granted this is how you develop the intellect number one and it's also one of the benefits of the intellect you won't get caught up in what everybody's getting caught up in or what you might have forget everybody else it's not about everybody else you won't get caught up in your usual patterns you'll be able to recognize that's a rut mm. i need to get out of that or that as we've said often, intellect is that which can see the end in the beginning. You'll be able to project like, yes, this sounds like a great idea. My, I'm really into this, but where will it take me? Yeah. Uh, uh, like the physical yoga and surfing, like you develop that body. Yeah. Um, you can get out of tricky situations. Yeah. But then you develop your intellect. You don't even get into the tricky situation because you're like, that's a terrible wave. Not going to not going to go for that wave. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. You can't be mechanical. You won't be mechanical anymore. Everything you do, you'll be quite uh, pensive and reflective. You won't just react so much more at, to life uh, of the many benefits. This is one of the many. Our friend the and the one of the best surfers in the world, Coe Rothman, was in that chair to months ago and said uh, i said what do you what's something that um you reflect on now that you're so glad you've learned honed uh gotten proficient at mm. versus koa 15 years ago mm-hmm. and uh he immediately said without hesitation said uh, wave selection mm-hmm. oh my god i used to take the worst waves yeah and i've learned over t- and so that that's not a technique that is in the body that is a total intellect totally uh, discernment for listeners that if this is your first episode the two internal equipments that we talk a lot about on this podcast and and within vedanta and vedanta treatise um 
Swami's lectures focus an immense amount around is the two internal equipment. Yes, everybody knows we have a body, but the two internal equipments of a mind and an intellect may be one of the central contributions of Vedanta, that you have two internal equipments. And there's enough things, resources for the mind. So this philosophy in this podcast and this episode is really about what we're talking about, yoga for your intellect, yeah. um, for that other internal equipment that is the mind is uh, the feely stuff, the emotions, the desires, the um, the what we conventionally think about is leading us in our lives, and the intellect is that that voice of discernment that comes in and says, "I don't know if this is a good wave to take," mm. metaphorically in life or quite literally mm. out in the ocean. That voice of discernment, and we all have it. And that's this is perfect story about toning that voice, giving that volume like you would to your muscles. Um, which it brings me up to this, brings up this next uh, point perfectly. Um, can you talk to me of, talk to me why you have to go from the known to the unknown and maybe why to our first story, it is nearly impossible or no, is impossible mm. uh, perhaps to jump straight into thinking of the self or the light bulb being able to reflectively be in awe of the electricity Um us being in awe of our consciousness. Mm. Can you can you talk to me about this phrase, from the known to the unknown? Known to the unknown uh, is the rails upon which education moves. So Vedanta doesn't start with, you know, mysterious high ideas. All of our lectures usually start with, you have a body. <laughs> you know? It's like, it seems really... Okay, I came to this place to, to be told I have a body, you know? Mm. It seems really elementary. But starting from the body, then we go within from there. It's like, okay, I have a body, but you know, my finger doesn't move itself. There's something else going on in this vehicle, right? That Those are the inner, the inner personality, which we were discussing, the mind and intellect. So your actions can be led either by the mind or the intellect or a combination of both. So the mind can have an impulse and the intellect can say, yeah, go ahead. That's fine. Or the mind can just impulsively do something. Or the intellect can decide, let's do X, Y, Z. This is how the body is moved by these inner two passengers. But underlying all of that is this self, the consciousness. But we don't start with that. We don't uh, start by talking about god or the origin or the truth or, or the infinite but it you move from where you are to where you want to be to where you want to understand otherwise you have to go back and cover your tracks you'll never be you'll never reach the destination if you try to go from uh drive from here to texas you know and i tell you okay yeah just um when you get to phoenix stay on highway 10 hmm you don't even know how to get out of the neighborhood. How do I get from here to the highway? And from there, where do I go? You'll just be stuck. So there's a, it becomes intellectual indulgence only if we, if we are only focused on, on the unknown uh, directly. We've got to work from, okay, I exist. I have a body. I have a mind. I have an intellect. What is it that is allowing me to be conscious of these things? So Vedanta 
points us in the direction of the unknown. But it can't define the unknown. The unknown is undefinable. Throughout the Bhagavad Gita, throughout the Upanishads, the word Vedanta itself means that which is beyond knowledge, which is beyond the known. So the ultimate truth can't be even grasped with the intellect, but it can be pointed out from the known intellectual landmarks or recognizable things that we can conceive, and you infer that that absolute reality is there. So this is called Chandra Shakanyaya, the moon branch analogy. So if you're walking on a bright blue day, hiking somewhere in the hills here, and you see you know, a little fingernail of the moon, and you point out whoever you're hiking with, hey, look, uh, you see the moon. Cool-looking moon. Cool moon, you know, in the middle of the day. The person you're with doesn't see it. They're looking for it. You say, okay, okay. See that hill over there? Yeah. See the tree on the hill? Yeah. See that one branch sticking up off of that tree on the hill over there? Yeah, I see it. Look up about a few inches. Oh, okay, okay. Mm -hmm. That's the moon. So what's fascinating is, the hill has nothing to do with the moon. The tree has nothing to do with the moon. The branch sticking up out of the top of the tree has nothing to do with the moon. And yet, it leads you to a perception of the moon. Mm. The whole Vedanta is like that. The entire thing is nothing but pointers. Pointing us in the direction of this consciousness, this reality, this self, this truth, which can never directly be grasped by the intellect. But if we move from the known to the unknown, from the hill that we see to the tree that we see to the thing that we see, and then project even deeper, what is it that allows all of this to function? Mm. What is it that gives sentiency? Then you, it, you're looking in that direction. Mm -hmm. It's like arcs in math, and I think it's geometry, where you draw arcs to find a, a point, but you never have the actual cord and it's for that point so you draw this arc and that arc and this arc and that arc what it is becomes so clear but without directly saying what it is mm. but if you just start by saying god is infinite love infinite mercy infinite whatever everyone's like oh great sounds nice we don't move yeah because no one knows what infinite is. No one knows what real love is. No one knows what it, all of these things are. The word God itself is just another word for X. So Vedanta doesn't do that. Vedanta moves from this is what we experience. This is how it works. And projects that there must be an underlying reality upon which all of this is superimposed. And what is, and what is undefined is the language. Um, but what is defined pointed to um, articulated in the language is that the experience is is it's not like uh, it stays in the unknown from the experiential it stays in the unknown from the effable the the spoken word there you can't articulate it yeah but the point is to like saying go down the road take a right then a left go to three miles take another right and I can't describe what you're going to see and, and you experience just because I'm using words. But mm. if you follow those seven directions, philosophy 
it's very clear you will experience it yes uh, it doesn't just stay in the it can't it can't be right. experiences anyway it's not f- for you to uh to experience it can't be understood and it can't linguistically but it is meant to be experienced it is the experience it is your natural it's uh, it's you it's, it's you. it is your true nature experiencing itself atman yevatmanatushtaha satisfied the atman is satisfied in the self by the mm. self which is different from an experience because an experience is usually a subject and object meeting mm. right so it's a different state of being it's an awakening these are all pointers we're, we're now demonstrating mm. what we're talking about so even that is known to the unknown. You know that you deep sleep and you dream and you wake. It's such a profoundly useful, I mean, you can't. Yes, let's go over it. The, yeah, I mean, without, without Vedanta, without the three states of consciousness, it's like, how would you explain that there's a different state of consciousness? So every day, every human being goes through deep sleep, dream, and waking states. These are three distinct states of consciousness. The deep sleeper is conscious of nothingness. The dreamer is conscious of the dream world. Right now, we as wakers, or let's say the wakers, are conscious of the waking world that they're interacting with. Vedanta says there's a fourth state. There's a state which is as distinctly separate and uh, liberated from the waking state as we are con- currently uh, separated from, liberated from the dream state. Mm. So as fully and completely as the dreamer and the dream world are dissolved in the waking state, just as completely this waker and the waker, the waking world is dissolved in the consciousness, the, the fourth state of consciousness. The state of, it's called Turiya. Turiya in Sanskrit literally means fourth. That state is self-realization, is knowledge, is the attainment of reality, one's true self. It's not an intellectual understanding of the waker. Mm. It's not an emotional feeling of the waker. It's not a perception of the waker. It's not a sight, a smell, a sound. People have all kinds of ideas. You'll hear some sound of God and that that's God. It's in the waker. It's anything in the waking world's in the waking world. Mm. So when the entire thing folds... The waker cannot communicate to the dreamer into the dream world. No. There is no other waker that's watching the dream that is in that uh, metaphorical liberated state that's like, hey, psst. Look over there. Yeah. Yeah. The fourth state of consciousness is as distinct and separate from this state as we are currently from the the dream state. Mm. Known to the unknown. It seems innocuous. It's like, yeah, okay, I dream. I deep sleep. I wake. What does that have to do with what God is? Mm. What does that have to do with uh, enlightenment or heaven or or what or what real happiness is it seems like it's like saying there's furniture in the house yeah i know i, I deep sleep i dream i said big deal but i need to get to work yeah i gotta i, I gotta, gotta but, but tell me the truth already that is the thing to think about 
Mm. You know, that... <laughs> um, I was thought about it this morning. I, I don't know. Years ago, I went to Swamiji and I said something like, I don't know, in, early on. You know, early on means in the first five years. At some point, I went to him and I said something like, yeah, but Swami, this is all fine, but but I'm still Joseph doing this thing. He goes, you goose. <laughs> <laughs> he called me a goose. It was a very, he's a very pious guy. That's the kind of words he uses. You goose. <laughs> mm. After all these years of brainstorming, you still think you're the waker. Mm. <laughs> Silly. And walked away from me. Whatever my dumb question was, I'm glad I asked because I'm, I'm relaying that now and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm remembering it now. But that, that fundam- the first step in the question was, you goose, you're not the waker. <laughs> you mm. think you're the waker. So the any... What's also so, this is what we were talking about earlier. It's what's so liberating about this is like, if you wake up in the morning and just think about deep sleep, dream, and waking for an hour and all the, and the implications, you know, using Vedanta in the systematic way that we recommend, if you happen to study that portion, you realize anything the waker's done or hasn't done, commissions and omissions, has nothing to do with me. Hmm. I'm not the waker. Ultimately, that's what Vedanta is saying. I am that consciousness. I am Atma Brahma. In the silence of my true nature, I am my true self. I will know that. And this thing, I, I may not know it now. I feel completely bound by this waker now. I'm really certain still that I'm this waker. Mm-hmm. But just to know that there is a state where you will understand that everything you did, good, bad, indifferent, had nothing to do with you, if it happened at all, mm-hmm. which is also another question. You know, nothing ever really happened. But from our point of view, it's happened. But it's such a liberating thing, known to the unknown. So rather than just tell someone, your nature is divine, you have a soul, you know, God is infinite peace and power, and he's taking care of all of us. He's the source of the world. And What? You can't leap to that. Nothing works that way in life. You can't leap that to that. You can't go join a yoga class. If anything, class. it shuts down your intellect. It totally does. Yeah, it does. And you, you think, stop questioning anything. You're just like, you're like man, oh, this is too, so wild. It's and people, too, too big for me. Especially yeah. you find yourself in a community that, I mean, definition of a cult, will kill you if you question it. Will yeah. kill you if you do not say these words in a certain order, yeah. which was... Uh, the western world there for a while literally Um, yeah so yeah it's so it shuts down the intellect yeah and makes you it it's a great system to build if you want people dependent on your intellect is to shut down theirs correct if you want people in the doors every day every week and paying their tithes and offerings and things yeah yeah, don't think about it you you can't understand it Mm -hmm. it, it, because it's taught that way Mm mm-hmm but it's, it's too, too simple. The real masters of Vedanta, they, they talk about what's in front of them. What's right in front of you. They think you're a goose if you don't see it. Yeah, it's like I told you how to focus on the cricket ball. Like, that's everything. The same way you focus on the cricket ball, focus within yourself. You know, they, they, it's so practical. This is what actually helps people to move from where we are to actually some way down the road. Mm. is to understand first of all understand i've got desires i've got attachments i've got uh 
these things that need to be understood. You know, start with these things. Create thought space. In that thought space, start adding a bit of these higher ideas. Slowly, it it uh, it gets absorbed. Uh, a, a myth on par with the tyranny of expectation, low expectations would be um, the idea of the expert, which is so uh, mythologically strong in our culture that some distant experts, they've got it figured out. You can't figure it out. The, those physicists that have spent 20 years, string theory, those bigwigs in Hollywood, the titans of industry in New York or Silicon Valley, they, they haven't figured it out. And then you get close to them. You go into that lab with the string theorists. They're like, we have no, no yeah. effing clue. Yeah. I've, I've had someone in this seat that I'm sitting in right now that runs Lions, Lionsgate mm. movie studio. And he's like, thing about Hollywood is no one knows anything. Yeah, I remember he saying that, yeah. Or Silicon Valley and being in the room with, um, being friends with Sam Altman, OpenAI, mm. and having conversations with him around all kinds of different topics. And it being just so clear that the strength was in the humility of like, no idea yeah like in the midst of the hype of cryptocurrency where everyone outside and inside silicon valley is saying this is the real thing he's like you think it's you think that's bitcoin's actually gonna make it mm. and i'm like dude everyone outside these walls is a bull run and you're one of the insiders of the insiders and you're like you're not buying it mm. So that idea of these experts to where you can't be an expert, where you can't have these questions because you haven't done the 20 years of seminary or the 20 years of mm. physics grad school is a total myth that really stifles our, our intellect mm. uh, to, to the point you're making. And what comes to mind is why can't we trust our perceptions? Because that does seem to be our fundamental Everyone knows it's obvious barometer of what's real if I can touch it. Yes, yes, yes. Because whose perceptions will we trust? You know? Mm. The hummingbird or the blue whales or the the bacteria under this table or the spider up in one of the corners, <laughs> you know? Uh, who's to say what is what? Is their perception any less? you know, than ours. Mm. We see a tiny band of light. Right. There's some, I mean, there there's animals that function on a completely different frequency of things. I believe the whales see some sort of road of something, some sort of energy lines in the, in the ocean that helps them. And seas also doesn't mean eyeballs. There's diff all different types of ways things function a mosquito has a hundred eyes perfectly they're amazing and how they see and react to everything we wouldn't if you suddenly got the the vision of a, a mosquito you, you wouldn't have it wouldn't be the same world mm. bats see something else every you know so who's to say what is what is the actual thing there is no objective reality that way and the Again, the waking state and the dream state really drive this drive this home because we're so sure that this is real right now. Everything is so real. My body is real. This table is real. This glass is real. You're real. Everything's real. But the moment I go to sleep, the moment I dream, 
it's gone for the dreamer. But it, it takes a leap. And for us, it's obvious because we love the idea. We've been thinking about it for a long time. But people that are like, no, no, what are you talking about? Uh, it just means I dreamt. I came back and I was a waker. Everything mm. was where it was again. It's just where I left it. Yeah, yeah. But not for the dreamer. And that's the crux. But you take dreaming totally for granted. So do I. Everybody does. You, you, this, uh, this morning I did a strange thing. I don't know why. Instead of have coffee at the end of my study, I lay down on the couch and had a dream for 20 minutes and then mm. got up at like 6 a.m. You know, you, I don't usually do it. But it was really shocking because maybe I was a little tired or something. So um, it's so shocking. Because, like, you just lay down on the couch and I'm in a completely other world. With that all. you also think has continuity of, like, this all makes sense. In that world. Everything about this makes perfect sense as I dream about the history of how I got into this room. Boom, you're projecting why it the whole all thing. makes sense. The yeah. universe is five billion years old or whatever in that dream world. It's right. as just right. real as this is now. And then I opened my eyes and I'm like, oh, shoot, James, all right, we're doing our thing. Okay, wait, what? Oh, I'm good. It's only seven. I was gone for like 20, mm. 20 minutes randomly. Early morning naps. <laughs> so we completely take it for granted. And it should make us question, is this even actually there? This thing that I'm so sure of. Because it so easily disappears. If we dreamt only once in our life, not every night, it would be the most profound thing anybody ever goes through. It would be so completely shocking to the system to have the world go away and turn into another world with another you also. Mm -hmm. We would be so stunned that there would be entire schools of religion and philosophy and whatever built around processing what happened to you, mm. you know? And there would be probably training schools and whatever preparing you and I'm sure there would be nutrition and certain uh, nootropics yeah. and things that you can take before you go into your one dream and to like and preparation uh, <laughs> mentally, intellectually yeah. of like what you're going to perceive is not going to be real. Yeah, don't worry about it. Ah, uh, that way too. Let it go. Mm. And then culturally, on the other side, just as like obvious to where yeah, if it was like at when you're 30, everybody dreams around 30. Maybe you'll get it 28, maybe it'll 32. Yeah. But then culturally, it would it would be so clear of. You cannot trust your perceptions. Totally. And there would be people that are like, maybe that's the reality. Not this. You know, if they're thinking. Mm. And this is King Jonica's question. Am I the king that dreamt I'm a beggar? Or am I really a beggar now dreaming I'm a king? And that question led him all the way to self-realization. Because the answer is, you're neither. You're not the waker. You're not the dreamer. You're not the deep sleeper. You are the consciousness that is conscious of all of them. Mm. This is Vedanta. And I say that and everyone's like, cool, but no one can understand that. It's like trying to understand a one-sided coin. Mm. The words make sense. We can spell it. You remember the hyphen, everything. One-sided coin. But it doesn't actually take your intellect anywhere. I'm sure you get a visual. I get a visual. Uh, like a coin with like the back is, mm -hmm. is trailing. But no, that's two sides. Actually, a one-sided coin is inconceivable. Mm. So this idea, it just, all it does is creates uh, an awareness of something unchanging, real, 
about me that is behind all of the three personalities of deep sleeper, dreamer, and waker. That's about all we can say it does. But that that slight orientation to whatever that is, whatever our true nature is, liberates us from the other three. And as you said, makes our perception questionable. <laughs> makes the reality of our current experience makes it very questionable for all you listeners that are uh, on your commute at the gym on a run cleaning dishes waking up with your morning tea or coffee maybe you're not the next thing that is um, on this list that I wanted to ask you about is the you touched on the the mamukshatwa and the desire for union with what is the desire for desirelessness yeah um the irony there is is kind of self-evident so could you walk me through um the the example that comes to mind is the pole vaulter but yeah. um could you walk me through desire, how one can desire desirelessness and mm. how that isn't just chasing your own tail? Yeah. So one should desire desirelessness. Let's put it that way. Um, and that desire is a desire. It's... it's <laughs> So it seems like a, uh, a contradiction to entertain that, to pursue a desire for desirelessness uh, seems to be like just adding one more layer of noise to the mind, which needs to be quiet, quietened to reach our original state of consciousness. But that desire has the different it's of such a different quality it has it's such a different uh level of desire that it displaces all of the other desires so when you cultivate in your mind the thought of reality and start to identify with it this also enhances your mamukshatwa your sense of of needing to get liberated from conditioning. You get to a point where you're just like, everything's just the world. No matter how good, no matter how bad, it's still limited, it's still conditioned. I, I, I want to get to that which is real, which is not conditioned, which is true. you know. And this is enhanced by the knowledge and study of Vedanta. And the, as you identify with it and desire that state that Vedanta keeps talking about, wondering what is it to be in that state, as you start thinking in that direction, your whole personality gets attached to that desire for the self, for self-realization, to reach that state of pure consciousness. That overtakes all the other desires. long way into the path towards the end you can start thinking about dropping that desire but not first you know and so this is a thing that a lot of sort of new age 
people are are telling the world is, hey, don't uh, you're perfect now, you know, just realize what you are now. Don't don't. Uh, the moment you give up wanting, you'll get it. Mm. But it's like. It's putting the cart before the horse. Then you'll just be left with all the desires you have. Mm. Rivers don't make 90-degree turns. They don't make 90-degree turns. There's a story of a, a Buddhist master. I forget his name, but uh, he was he had a following. He was he was very old man. He had a big following. He was a great teacher of the Dharma, you know, practitioner, monk. And... Uh, Late in his life, he was he had his usual Dharma talk, and he was talking about it. And he just got to a point of desperation for the truth. That desire was so all he had left, but he wasn't there yet. And he just said, there's no such thing as... And the moment he said there's no such thing, he was going to say as mm. nirvana. He got it. So for him, who had done all the work, who had put in all the work, who had cultivated that desire, who had cultivated that strong sense of let me get liberated from this entire state of consciousness let me get out of it completely for him he got it all to that point at that point he dropped it but don't do it first mm. don't do it first don't drop the desire for something higher first because you'll just be left with where you are and you you brought up the pole vault example it's like pole vaulting a guy just set a new world record the other day. I mean, some 20, oh, cool. 20.3 meters, some crazy thing. How high he got. Dude, 20 meters? Something, I believe so, yeah. I don't I don't know, but I that's so. like... Oh, it was huge. 60 feet. He just kept going up and up and up and up and up. Mat, he's American. Matu, I forget his name. Anyway, it was crazy. It can't be 60 feet, can it? 6.23 meters. Oh, six oh, point, oh so about 23 feet. Yeah, 23 feet. Awesome. Not Thank meters. you, Nick. Yeah. Listeners, you got fact checkers uh, and and yeah. Nick. Yeah, not me in the episode, but, but yeah, that's twenty crazy. something feet. Yeah, nuts. And um, if he wants to get over that bar, he can't get over that bar by just hopping over the bar. It's not going to unless he's no one's got ups like that, you know. <laughs> nor is he. Nor does he want to just put the pole down and say and walk around the bar, which is kind of the new age spiritual way. Hey, just put the bar down and go lay on the on the pillow. Yeah, but you haven't crossed the pole. Mm-hmm. You haven't crossed the bar. So you use the pole to get up, up, above that 20-something feet. And just at the end, you slide over it. And that point, you throw down the pole. But you couldn't have gotten there without the pole. The pole was necessary. And the pole in Vedanta is the desire for liberation. The desire, or to put it negatively, or the desire for the self, whichever way you want to put it. That's what's required. So uh, it's not the ultimate. The thought of reality is not the ultimate, but it will take you uh, completely out um, of the world. Mm-hmm. It, it has a special quality that's described. The thought of the self in Vedanta has a special quality that's described as swapna simhavat like a dream lion so vedanta is a part of the dream in the same way it's a part of the waking state in the same way that the lion is part of the dream state 
But when you're walking in the rice paddy and the dream and the lion's walking towards you and you have that weird frozen dream thing where you can't run away and the lion's about to bite you and he's opening his jaws, he's about to come on to bite, bite you and bite your chest and tear you into pieces, you wake up. Vedanta's the same. In the waking state, Vedanta's Swapna Simhavat. It's the lion in the dream. This knowledge, these ideas that it's putting out that we're talking about, trigger that awakening. Hmm. That's a great visual. Going back from the kind of deep end of the, of the pool into the practical side, if this is someone's first time of ever coming across Vedanta, um, can you talk about um, what Vedanta is and and uh, that super helpful definition of manual for a living and, and where it still helps with that commute to work, with that meeting that you're worried about an hour from now that only allows you to... Uh, Reflect on something you just heard that you thought was awesome, cool, profound, interesting, unique, stupid. Reflect on it for three seconds before you jump into thinking about that practical matter in an hour. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about the history of Vedanta and then also just the fact that it really, it's, it, uh, I think it was Aldous Huxley that called it uh, the perennial philosophy as well as the practical philosophy. Yeah, so Vedanta is a digest of the of wisdom from the most brilliant people that ever live in the history of humanity for five ten thousand years sitting in the himalayas doing tremendous research into their own nature into what is a human being into the consciousness at the core of a human being into the construction and composition of a human being it is a subjective science these people were not just uh you know, um, superstitious in in their approach. They were very scientific in watching themselves, observing themselves, experimenting with being a human being, what are the best ways to be a human being, observing others. So you're talking about a wisdom tradition that's thousands and thousands of years old that has specialized in what what is a human being, how do they function, and what are the optimized ways to function as a human being. So... For us, in the modern world, why not take those notes, you know? There's a saying that the wise learn from others' experiences, fools learn from their own. So somebody's left behind a manual of how to do something. Why not use it? And this is how to do everything, because life is a series of experiences, anubhava dara. Every experience has two parts, you and the world, subject, object. You are in every experience. The human being, the self, is a part of every experience, in every relationship, in every work, in every indulgence, in every restraint. Everything that we do in life involves the human being. So every piece of your life, from getting dressed to to go to work, to go to work, to on your lunch break, to playing with the family, whatever it is, all of it can benefit by optimizing the human being. I mean, businesses are nothing but a collection of individuals, ultimately. Um, so how it, how happy it is, how successful that is, also comes down to what is the optimal way that a human being can function. 
So uh, Vedanta starts with the the very practical, simple lessons about what a human being is. There's a body and it's a vehicle. It's a vehicle for inner equipments. These two inner passengers that are riding in the vehicle, mind and intellect. Mind is the irrational, flowy stuff. It, it has no direction or dimension. It has no ability to say enough. It's like fire. It's the child in us. Mm. It's the water in the river. The intellect, the buddhi, is that which can think, reason, judge, to dis- decide that when they are of equal power, the intellect can lecture to the mind and guide it. That's more than enough, that piece of information, for a happy life. Right there. Forget all the highest transcendental ideas. That much is enough. Because ultimately it's the mind that causes the destruction in our lives. It's the mind which disturbs us. It's the mind which allows us to enjoy. It's, it's, and that is governed by the intellect. So just knowing, for example, I have a mind, I have an intellect, is such a massively important piece of the manual. And it's just the beginning. But if a person takes that intellect all the way to the highest level of development, they can penetrate into the unknown. They can reach the high flights of meditation and contemplation and realize the self. It's the same equipments. Mm. So there's much more to Vedanta, but even the fundamentals are so useful to know. That it's Once you learn about the intellect and mind, for example, or the gunas or swadharma and paradharma and all of these fundamental concepts, it's like imagine living without that understanding. It's It's like... It's like Using a and the f- manual isn't very long. It's not that long, no. No, it doesn't have to be. I mean, there's a lot more it can The say. metaphor or the, the, the literal Vedanta treatise is not, this is not. Yeah, it's not encyclopedias. Right. And there's a lot of repetition. But it's like imagine if you use your iPhone the way you use your Nokia phone from the 90s. Like, and you just really didn't know that what it could do. Like if you lived in some vacuum and someone gives you a phone and you just ask where the numbers are mm-hmm. and where's the text message thing. And that's all you ever use it for. You don't know it can order food and get you a car and <laughs> God knows what all these things can do now, you know. Because you haven't read the manual. So just better to read the manual. You will use yourself fully, optimally and succeed in whatever you want to succeed in. That's the other thing. Nowhere in the manual does it tell you what you should succeed in, mm-hmm. what you should do with yourself. It doesn't do that. In a previous episode, we chatted about uh, Plato quoting Socrates and saying, um, what a shame it is for man to never see the capacity of their body. Mm-hmm. And similarly, what a shame it is to get to the end of our lives, to get to 50, get past our some of our best years or to uh, to make so many wild mistakes and not feel the capacity of our of ourselves yeah not just a strong fit body but just the capacity of who you are yes right just skating on the surface like not not reaching the depth of um even just um it's trite i think to say happy people there's such it's, it's like such a surface understanding but to even get to these relatively profound states of, of recognizing 
you know, the beauty of a particular moment or, or just to be able to enjoy our lives, enjoy our work mm-hmm. in a relative sense, just to have some non-disturbed time as a human being. Uh, it's impossible without understanding these, these fundamentals. It's just always running. You mentioned a few of them, Swadharma, Paradharma, Gunas, um, which though know, these are the Sanskrit. One of the coolest things about this philosophy, by the way, is that it is still in the original source language of Sanskrit. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe it throws you for the first time you're hearing Swadharma, which uh, simplistic definition would be your nature, which I would love to ask you about. But the benefit of this, uh, of that slight speed bump of, of, and you don't even have to learn these terms, but of them getting used, the benefit is that it's been the same language, yeah. the same verse from that Upanishad for thousands of years in that exact language versus what uh, what happens when you have something like Christ's words that are said in Aramaic, then translated into Greek, then translated into Latin, then translated into English. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's... We, we've chatted about previously and just like how wrong an interpretation can take a message or mm-hmm. a really strange detour, much mm-hmm. less four different interpretations yeah. um, that could happen um, that you just hope there were sages along the road. Yeah. That you just don't have to, it's just, it's far clearer uh, with the Sanskrit. But before, oh, no, I, I, was you gonna, finish I was gonna say also like, um, Vedanta is so mathematical. It's so scientific. It's like formulas, you know, to the point that some of the early critics described it as babbling of mankind in early childhood. They discriminate because they read the Upanishads and they said, what is this? You know, it sounds like babbling. But it's not just stories and myth and like so much of kind of, I say, the junior philosophies of the world, you know are just kind of stories and myth and they just kind of leave it at metaphor and nobody ever really gets into the depth of what it's actually talking about. Whereas Vedanta, it it goes threadbare, you know, it goes down to like what it's actually saying. You know, it's not. What would be an example of a junior versus like explicit uh, going to the. Oh, I don't know. I mean, you know, just um, like allegory of the cave allegory of the cave or or you know just the idea of like god talking to moses on a hill or something you know like uh, then you get grabbing the serpent moses grabs the serpent and all that you're like no one ever gets into the depth of that stuff whereas vedanta is just like govern your ego if you govern your ahankara if you govern your ego it will become useful to you that thing which used to disturb you it's the same thing, but it's just, it's straight. It's like, here's the formula, mm-hmm. you know? And, and it was actually a Vedantic teacher that taught me, um, I think it was maybe Sarvaprinanda talking about Moses grabbing the snake, the actual symbolism of that yeah. become the, 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 the staff. And, no, and I mean, it, yeah, it Swami, took a Vedantic Swami teacher. Tells that all the time. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Swami talks about it as well. Yeah, yeah. But I was like, I've never thought about that. Right. Um, or another another uh, Vedantic teacher talking about 
King Solomon, the wisest of all of the kings in the oldest in the Old Testament, was given given the choice from God. What do you want? You can have anything. Ask for wisdom. God said, because you ask for wisdom, you get everything else too. And he was the wealthiest of all the kings of the Old Testament. Wisdom being the precursor to everything else. That yeah. And that's it was Vedantic teachers that that went explicitly into. And I'm sure there are preachers or or teachers out there in the Christian realm, but I never heard it explained so um, explicitly of that symbolism, but to the point you're making uh, right now as well, you read Vedanta Treatise or you read uh, Bajagovindam, and there isn't three steps you need to jump. It gets right to it. goes straight to it. Yeah, that's the point. And when you go straight to it, I mean, there is Puranic stories and myth on top of Vedanta that's in the same tradition, of course. But the essential philosophy is like these formulas. It's just like very clear. It is the ear of the ear. There are sense centers. It's like boom, boom, boom. Body, mind, intellect. It's just straight to it as like this is what you need to know. The The amazing thing is that when you get the formulas clear, then you can apply them to all these uh, junior philosophies. And you're like, I know what that thing is saying. Deeply. It's like oh, it's made me ten times the Christian I was before. Just deeper, yeah. And um, it's like uh, your AI uh, code. It's like when you get that basic whatever it is, LLM, the large language model. Sure. Mm-hmm. When you get that in place, then it's like that can be applied to whatever data sets, and it does whatever it does. <laughs> I don't understand. Well, to round out the practical yeah. Uh, yeah. side of, of things, yeah, it's a, uh, I I've mentioned it before, but it's uh, starting three companies, three kids under the age of six. It's four venture funds uh, and so peaceful. Mm-hmm. And and each company has done better than any of my previous companies hmm. for especially all of my twenties. Just failure after failure, stress out of my mind, seven days a week. Doing everything by the book. Yeah. But like we said, always outsourcing my intellect, choosing bad waves, putting myself in the ER with a heart condition hmm. versus just being like, Oh, you want to record a few episodes on Thursday? Let's carve out three hours and Hmm. uh it's easy yeah Um, yeah but but i do want to put a pin in this for now because Mm. i think we're getting into um i think we should make this a multi-part um episode because these are so good and i still have a few that i want to touch on as well as you already um mentioned swadharma paradharma yeah if you're down can we do a second part we'll do it another time all right all right brother thank you just thanks man That episode was fantastic. And if you are digging yoga for your intellect and want to introduce this philosophy to your coworkers and your team, well, Joseph and I are down to come visit basically an in-person YFYI. Come visit with you and your team. In the same way that you might invite a yoga instructor for a team building event, we're willing to come to your office and talk to your team as well. We can do it over Zoom as well. It is, uh, it's whatever makes sense, but uh, we're even 
down to do it in person. And that is just in line with the mission of making this philosophy available and accessible to all those that seek it. Joseph and I would love to come talk with you and your team about Yoga for Your Intellect. And that really comes from my perspective of running businesses for the last 15 years and just knowing, man, it was about 10 years ago, I was running a 50-person company, led to a trip to the ER, I was drinking seven cups of coffee a day to try to stay on top of everything, um, trip to the ER with a heart condition. Needless to say, it was a very, very stressful, extremely stressful time in life. And that business ultimately failed. And 10 years later, I sit here and, and get to have these conversations with, with Joseph while running two companies and, and a venture fund. Each day just feels like it's a hot knife through butter. I have not had a single day of stress in the last six, seven years of building multiple companies and, and multiple venture funds. It's truly remarkable, and I know that it's not me or the businesses that are different than 10 years ago, but it's my approach to each day and quite literally to the start to the day because every day starts with this philosophy for me, and we want to share it with your team. For me, it feels like an obligation of sorts and a loud siren saying that teams and companies around the globe need to hear this. So if you're interested, email us at this is the key thing. Email us at yoga for your intellect at gmail.com. That's yoga for your intellect at gmail.com. Use the email address in the show notes, and we would love to come chat with you and your team. 